whenever I think of someone who is making a difference at grassroots level, my fabulous guest surely comes to my mind. He has been involved with conservation in various forms for like ages now. Every time I've had a conversation with him, I almost feel like I'm in some sort of a storytelling session. Every story is so different, so exciting, and needless to say, thought-provoking. A senior manager of Wildlife Disaster Response for Humane Society International India, founder trustee at Vanamitra, Sumant Bindumadav, welcome to the show. Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's an absolute honor to be here. So super, you know, so super happy to actually have you on the show. I know we've like spoken many times before, but I cannot tell you how excited I am to do this with you today. Same here, same here. Awesome. So I first want to begin by asking the most fundamental thing. Can you maybe tell us like what conservation is and why there is a need to pay attention to this? Sure. Uh, that's actually something that a lot of people do uh, do ask me as well about mm -hmm. conservation and what it is and yes. Uh, yes. and how it's different from protection, really. Uh, the way I see it, very often people will uh, use conservation and protection interchangeably. Uh, but I do believe that there's a massive difference between the two. Uh, when, you're, when you say protection, you're automatically implying that you're protecting one thing from another. Uh, it sure. could be other external factors or it could be people or it could be animals, whatever it is. You're protecting mm -hmm. one entity from several other entities. Uh, right. To me, that's fundamentally wrong when it comes to wildlife. Uh, okay. It's, 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 it's the same as putting animals in an enclosure uh, and you can call the enclosure a national park and then saying mm -hmm. the animals inside there are protected. People don't okay. interact with animals. Animals don't interact with people, and that's uh, that's that's it. That's done. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. That's that feels like a very shallow setup overall, right? It's not conservation. It's very isolated. It's keeping people and animals away. Uh, that's not what conservation needs to be. Conservation is when people see the benefit of having wild animals all around us, and actually do something towards their well-being and welfare overall. Uh, okay. Conservation is a process that has to be inclusive and mm -hmm. very non-linear. Uh, and, and in their natural setup, basically. And in their natural setup. I mean, and, and mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the largest debate, right? What is a natural yeah. setup? Unfortunately, we right. come with a lot of biases where the minute we see a yeah. snake in a city, for example, we say it needs to be in a forest. Uh, yeah. And that's our, our bias. When we see a, an animal in the city, we say it needs to be in the forest. But nobody mm -hmm. told told the snake that, or nobody told a leopard that it's not supposed <laughs> to come into Bombay. Uh, these that. are animals that don't recognize man-made boundaries. Uh, yeah. So to them, wherever they live is their habitat. And that mm -hmm. to me is the essence of conservation. Just understanding that uh, we humans and animals have to share space. And how can mm -hmm. we do that with the minimal amount of conflict possible? That to me is conservation. Sure. So in, in that space, again, right, you actually founded Vanamitra, an organization which deals with, you know, or which dealt with uh, human wildlife conflict management. Uh, it was all about spreading awareness about wildlife such as snakes and even butterflies, right, and how to coexist. Uh, it also dealt with rescuing wildlife and so on, right? So again, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what was this motive behind starting Vanamitra and you know, why was it actually started, basically? 
Sure. Uh, this was many years ago now. Uh, and what yeah. we saw was that there are several people doing rescues, uh, wildlife rescues yes. from conflict scenarios. There are people who are generally on, on some scale interested in wildlife conservation, but are uh, not connected to each other to begin with. Yeah. Uh, and there were also no, and there continues to be no standard protocols of how do you deal with conflict aside from the megafauna of uh, tigers and elephants to which government gives yeah. guidelines. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's so much other interaction with wild animals, be it mm -hmm. uh, birds of prey, be it snakes, be it uh, mongoose. There's so much else yeah. that's going on across the country every day. And there was right. a big gap in connecting uh, all of these folks who are doing hands-on work with wild animals uh, and getting them to essentially start saying the same things to, to common people. Uh, you, you have a bunch of people across the state who are saying different things when it comes to conflict. Uh, and that, that was the motive behind which, uh, which we started Vanamitra itself, to connect okay. these rescuers, bring them onto a common platform, uh, build their capacity as well to uh, come up to the same page, essentially in terms of skills and conversation and use them as channels of communication to the larger community and say that these are animals mm -hmm. around us, here's how we can actually live uh, with them and alongside them. That was the okay. primary motive of starting Vanamitra. Okay, and, and it was not just about snakes, right? I mean, what kind of maybe like wildlife rescues would happen? Maybe if you can help share some of those things as well. Yeah, plenty. I mean, we started with uh, snakes simply because the three of us who started the organization were all uh, <laughs> passionate about uh, snakes and snake rescue, yeah. and we were already involved in it. Uh, but once we got in, we realized that uh, the conflict is there at such a such a massive scale. Uh, and yeah. I mean, I, I would actually not even call it conflict. There's just interaction between people's and, people and animals. Uh, mm -hmm. And this was true with leopards, for example. One of, that's one of the biggest things that uh, we did as an organization. Uh, leopards would leopards are very common. They're one of the most common big cats across any city. Like Bangalore has leopards, Bombay has leopards. Uh, yeah. It's just that they choose to not be seen by us, and our, it doesn't help that our, we are not great with our observational skills, so we don't see them very often either. Uh, and the same is true in rural parts of the country as well, where leopards come into, uh, say, sugarcane fields, they would they would litter there, uh, and the mo mothers would go out to bring back food. Uh, farmers would find these cubs, and often out of ignorance, or knowing that the mother will come back, they would take the cubs away uh, to give them to the forest department to put it in a zoo, essentially, because uh, they don't want the animal coming back. Uh, and right, and it's want... just out of fear, essentially, right? Correct, mm -hmm. correct. Out of fear and, and ignorance of what's going to happen, they would just take them okay. away and put them into a zoo, uh, mm -hmm. which we felt was, was, was quite terrible, right? You're, these are, there are these newborn cubs who've barely opened yeah. their eyes, um, and instead of spending their day in the wild, they're sent off to a zoo where they'll spend the next 12, 15 years in a cage uh, okay. on display to people for the sake of entertainment. So uh, mm -hmm. we did quite a bit of work around uh, spreading awareness in people to begin with on why this does why this shouldn't be done, and we also did a fair amount of capacity building with the government itself to say that the cubs that are taken away like this, how do you unite them back with their mother? And we had several of those instances across the state. Uh, whenever cubs would picked up, uh, the government would call us. We would rush there, 
um, and using our, the protocols that we developed, uh, we would reunite the mother and the cubs and also at the same time spread awareness amongst people itself to say that uh, this is uh, these animals have always been here. They've, they've not come here from somewhere to litter. Uh, so right. if you've never seen a leopard in all these years that you've been around, and if you saw this this one instance, there's a good chance it will be another five years before you see another leopard. So if mm -hmm. you don't, if if it doesn't bother you, let them be, and they're not uh, they're not here to uh, the minute Harm you see a leopard, they're, yeah, they're not, correct. Yeah. They're not going to pounce on you the minute they see you. Uh, right. So we did a lot of those work, and those were extremely uh, extremely important. And now that's become a practice for the Karnataka Forest Department itself. The minute they find cubs, their first go-to option is to reunite them with the mother and send them off instead of putting them in the zoo, which was a great, great victory for us. Right. And so that meant that there was like a huge collaboration done with the Karnataka Forest Department, uh, at least with Vanamitra, right? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I firmly believe that uh, the government entities in place uh, that have to do with wildlife or, or pretty much any sector, any part of the government, is there for yeah. a reason they are going to be there long after we are gone. Uh, yeah. And they need to be the ones who are empowered to do the job that they're supposed to do. Uh, it's very easy for us as NGOs or for uh, as individuals to come and say, we will do your job for you. And the government will probably be more than happy to give it off to us and say, great, you guys do it. Yes, take whatever help is available Correct. at the Correct. hand, right? Yeah. Correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's not sustainable in the long run because tomorrow, in, 10 years down the line, if, if, if an organization ceases to exist, then the yes. ones that are affected are the animals who you were working with and the communities you were working Correct. with. So uh, I firmly believe that collaboration with government agencies uh, and building their capacity is the way forward. And I still very, very firmly believe in that. So we work sure. very closely with the with government departments. I see. So I'm also keen to know, like, what has been some of the most fulfilling things and of course the challenges while running Vanamitra? Oh, oh, challenges were plenty. I mean, we had, I think we did fill <laughs> yeah. a book with challenges we had every day. I'm uh, sure. I'm sure. Yeah. But one of the biggest ones was that uh, we were such a small organization to begin with. Uh, and yeah. there are already giants in the field of wildlife conservation. Uh, so for governments to take us seriously, for communities to take us seriously was a big challenge. Uh, aside yes. from all the funding challenges that came along with running an organization itself. Uh, mm -hmm. Having said that, the the work itself was extremely fulfilling. Every time you okay. see a, 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 a leopard, for instance, come back and take its cubs back, those were some of the most yeah. fulfilling moments. We were, we were always at a distance watching what was going on. That is really fulfilling to know that you've kept uh, one leopard cub from going into a into a captive condition for the rest of its life, those are extremely yeah. fulfilling. And when even more so when we talk to people, when we talk to kids in the communities, get them to mm -hmm. relate to animals around them. Because even in yeah. our education system, we are so heavily invested in saying, where do animals live in a forest? What is a forest? It's something yes. that's far away from us. Uh, yeah, never of, that. Okay, there could be something in our yeah. environment, in our space, right? Yes. Exactly. Exactly. The minute we say wildlife in school, we are taught to think about elephants and tigers, and we think about them in some yeah. forest far away from us, uh, while right. we don't think about wild animals around us at all. Uh, right. To me, one of the most fulfilling things we did was to work with schools, work with communities, 
and mm-hmm. just sort of have an aha moment with them where we say there are animals right. all around you they they don't have to be in a yeah. forest um uh-huh. that was extremely fulfilling conversations to have with communities to be honest right and which is actually done at the ground level right you're not like maybe just talking at like say 10000 feet but you're actually working with people at ground level and then spreading that kind of awareness so that it actually gets carried forward right i mean you spoke about schools and what better way to do that right exactly and i think that's where uh, the focus needs to lie as well uh, initially we all sure. start off with these lofty dreams of we're going to change the landscape of conservation across the country type of thing uh, but yes. once you start working at a ground level you realize the actual expanse of the country uh especially mm-hmm. in terms of population and you realize that uh if you if you're looking at changing it across the entire country you're probably aiming too high that's beyond your capacity and at some point you're going to burn out instead Absolutely. if if you look at a small uh or even a village or a district or a taluk to begin with and say i'm going to change mm-hmm. how this district the small population lives with its animals that right. that can take a lifetime and that's one of the most uh fulfilling things you could do uh, and uh-huh. then others will look and learn from you and they'll do it wherever they are uh yeah but you have to have to work at a ground level on this correct and then set an example that hey this is possible and you can actually replicate this in many other areas as well right absolutely and i think that's the biggest thing you have to have a network of people who are doing this it, it cannot be uh, it Just cannot one or two people. yeah yeah, yeah I, can, I i cannot go and do this everywhere Uh, you have to share your learning share your data which is a sacrosan yeah. thing to do now correct absolutely the other thing which i've always found to be amazing about you is that you studied to be an engineer you graduated but then you switched gears to get into full time conservation related work right so mm-hmm. again i i really want to know how this happened and did you have to actually convince much at your place or was this like no big surprise to them <laughs> uh i actually had to uh, credit my mother for this uh, for a couple I of see. reasons uh, okay. so when we were when we were growing up i always wanted to have an animal at home uh, i always wanted to have dog i would bring dogs home at random also uh, okay to all of which my mom said no basically uh, okay. and that sort of pushed me to go outside looking for animals uh okay. and i started volunteering with uh, she actually put me into one of the first organizations in bangalore back in 1999 uh when okay. i was in 7th uh, grade still uh so she sure. she had me enroll as a volunteer there recognizing that i that i i'm going behind animals anyway might as well do it yeah. in some structured manner so uh so she got me into an organization and i really liked the work i was doing i would in fact uh, sure. spend time after hours after school uh and go on uh, rescues on snake rescues and kite rescues and various things and then come back and home. this was in 7th standard like your snake rescue yeah yeah oh don't know oh it was it was really okay. fun i mean this was also back in the day when there were no cell phones uh so we, we would uh, we would actually go by bus to rescue snakes and yeah. come back it was it was quite yeah. fun so uh and your parents it, knew So I'm sorry to you know just pause you there mm-hmm. but your parents knew that you were actually rescuing snakes as well uh when you were in 7th grade Well to think about it I, I'm not sure how much they knew what I was doing once I was in that office uh, <laughs> sure, yeah which, which probably was a good thing now uh in hindsight yeah. but uh but I I I I think they overall knew because they knew what the organization does 
so they yeah. must have known somewhere uh, right yeah but and and i think when it came to the time of uh, me figuring out graduation uh, unfortunately yeah. there were not too many courses uh, that offered wildlife biology as an undergraduate for example right uh, mm-hmm. and we uh, and to be in in all fairness my parents were also skeptical about conservation as a career because there was yeah. so there was such little known about it back then uh, absolutely so my my parents deal with me was that i studied study engineering and then i do whatever i want um, okay. so we both held up our ends of the deal i studied engineering sure uh okay. but never did a day's work of engineering <laughs> sure immediately just jumped into the you know the love of your life basically absolutely when i was in my final year is when i started uh, vanamitra and we just jumped right in awesome awesome and now with uh, you know humane society international india so you've been mm-hmm. part of many interesting studies and research you know like that of the russell's viper the olive ridley turtles and so on right so can mm-hmm. you maybe tell a little bit about you know what these individual studies are and why this is so important to be done and maybe even you know how these amazing uh species get tracked as well right that's something that not many of us know how this is done i think that mm-hmm. would be like wonderful to hear from you super uh so i've been with uh, humane society international india for about 6 years now a little over 6 years uh yeah mm-hmm. and hsi is the world's largest animal protection organization uh yeah. and we have a big office in india big presence in india working sure. on various verticals of animal protection itself uh um, mm-hmm. and on the wildlife side of it we there's so many issues that 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 are bothering uh, wildlife in general right there's far yeah. too much uh, for for us to do itself so uh, we picked a handful of things that we have expertise in and that i have expertise in and that what we can do uh one okay. of those is to look at human snake conflict which is mm-hmm. a massive issue in the country we have about 1 million uh, snake bites every year uh, across the country okay and we have mm-hmm. anywhere between 60 to 70000 people losing their lives uh, okay. and we have about 150 to 200000 people who suffer from uh, morbidity or loss of life function from snake bite uh, i see and mm-hmm. on the flip side there are dozens if not hundreds of snakes killed every day in conflict uh, the mm-hmm. minute there's a snake in someone's house their first response is to kill it uh, yeah and to to begin working on this even we knew uh, we know very little about snakes in general uh, i've mm-hmm. been working with snakes for a long time now um, yeah. and i have several colleagues who work on snakes but admittedly all of us know very little about snakes and how they interact okay. with people in general mm-hmm. uh, okay. one of the species that causes the most number of uh, bites and the most damaging bites actually is the russell's viper Uh, okay it's a species of viper that's found across most of the country uh mm-hmm. and they're they're quite different from snakes like cobras and crates wherein if they if they sense people coming they will they often just sit still and don't move hoping that people will not see them and they'll just keep moving on uh right. unfortunately mm-hmm. the snake is so well camouflaged that people don't see them and end up stepping on them very often uh which results in a bite and the venom is is severely complex and a very difficult one to treat especially because people don't uh people follow wrong uh, first aid practices or don't get to hospital on time so uh, when we started looking at the russell's viper we realized again that we know not next to nothing about the snake itself aside from right. 
the few uh, few minutes in its lifetime that we are face to face with a snake during rescue maybe uh, mm-hmm. and it's unfair to say i mean a, a lot of snake rescuers will say oh this snake behaves this way and it's really unfair to say that because we only get okay. to see a snake for a few minutes of its lifetime we have no idea what it does for the rest of the rest of its life literally uh, so for us to say for us to conclusively say this snake's behavior is this we mm-hmm. have to study them at a much much closer uh, much closer level to begin with yeah um, mm-hmm. and that means having to follow the same snake with rigor every day for at least 2 or 3 years to understand okay. what that snake is doing uh, and that's a that's a hard task with these with snakes being tiny creatures right i mean uh, yeah, absolutely we, yeah we do this for elephants and tigers and it's so much easier cuz you put a radio collar on them and now there are satellite collars and you get information right. uh, sitting at your home on where they are going and how they are moving uh, all of those things which snakes you don't and it's can't. a much larger species right and you can clearly like visibly see them uh, that, exactly. you know that this is the one right exactly exactly yeah. which yeah. snakes is a challenge but it's also in terms of volume of conflict snakes have the highest okay. of any animal um, i mean sure. 70000 people uh, killed by snake by, uh, snakes every year all the other animals combined don't uh, kill that many people in conflict as snakes do okay so uh, what what we started doing is to say that we need to understand russell's vipers better uh, okay. so we are doing this uh, study called the radio telemetry study of russell's viper itself uh, this mm-hmm. is being in uh, this is being done in collaboration with uh, with a colleagues organization called the lion at trust in just outside okay. of mysore uh wherein with the forest department and the lion at trust we've got about 30 russell's vipers uh at at various degrees now uh we okay. capture them from agricultural fields where they are commonly found uh mm-hmm. we insert a small radio transmitter in them uh, near the tail where there's a cavity and then okay. we put them back in the same place that we find them and we continue to track them every day for 3 years um it emits a small radio frequency that we track with an antenna and a, and a receiver and we monitor okay. them every day for about 2 or 3 years to learn uh-huh. many many aspects of their life uh to say how far do they move what is their home okay. range uh what do they how do they react when they see people near them what do they how do they right. react when they see cattle grazing near them um things yeah. like that which are which otherwise we would have never ever uh, been able to tell uh we're able to tell a lot more about the snake thanks to the radio telemetry study itself it's unbelievably hard work uh going out and tracking these snakes every day uh yeah yeah because they're also really really tricky to find uh, i i but, actually had a question in my mind while you were speaking right like how do you hmm. know like how much is the range of the snake right i mean you don't know like where they would go right or correct like i'm just still trying to understand like you know how far they would go and would there be like a person who mm-hmm. has to like literally like follow them somewhere uh, maybe just find that hey these are the places where they're usually found um, mm-hmm. yeah like i have these all these questions popping yeah. up in my head as you're speaking <laughs> yeah and that used that was a challenge for us as well to figure out how do we okay. do this to begin with because i mean the only other time a radio telemetry study has been done in india on snakes was on king cobras in mumbai oh. Uh, and we know yeah. back then we knew that king cobras traveled great distances over time uh, so yeah. we had someone literally following them on uh, by walk or on two wheelers and things like that uh, okay. with russell's vipers we sort of knew that they wouldn't move as much but we still couldn't take our chances 
so when we started yeah. off doing the study we would uh, go thrice a day to just figure out where they were uh, then we reduced mm-hmm. it to twice a day because we realized they weren't moving much uh, sure. now we've come to a point where we can do once a day uh, okay. and not lose them because uh, we've, okay. we've come to realize that these are not snakes that move much at all in fact uh, some of the snakes the male, some of the female snakes in fact could could mm-hmm. have a home range that's as small as 10 square meters Uh, that's it. Okay. Yeah, that's it. And they they yeah. just they find their water, they find prey, they find shelter within that 10 square meters and they they're happy to just stay there. They don't want to move out. So, uh it's it's been easy that way. Uh yeah. but it's still a lot of legwork nonetheless. Absolutely. I know and and something similar, right? Like you've done with uh, olive ridley turtles as well. I think that would be interesting to know uh like how that functions, right? Totally different from what you've done with the uh you know russell's viper over here correct and olive ridley turtles again is one of the one of those species that have bounced back from uh from being a threatened vulnerable species to now actually sure. being uh, having a really healthy population uh, across all oceans that they are in uh, mm-hmm. and along the coast of orissa where they come uh, to mass nest and they come in millions over over the span mm-hmm. of a couple of nights for mass nesting there so uh, okay. olive ridley turtles i mean this there's so much work that was that's already being done on them in terms of conservation in terms of understanding them uh the mm-hmm. tracking itself or the uh, telemetry itself of olive ridley turtles is something that an other organization called dakshin did uh and okay. we were we collaborate with them on and borrow their expertise and the information that they have on various things uh what mm-hmm. we do work on uh, actively with olive ridleys is again working with communities that are living around these creatures uh okay. and empowering them with all the information they need to uh conserve these turtles in situ which is when these turtles come ashore to nest uh to say uh let's not do anything that will compromise on the amount of land they have to nest on uh and this is all okay. beaches i'm talking mm-hmm. about so if there's yes, too much human yes. activity on the beach uh they're not going to have place to nest uh if there's too much uh Let's say the dogs moving around this it's very common for them to dig up mess and eat the eggs um, yeah destroy a lot of them that correct, way, right correct yeah. and several years ago uh, people would also consume eggs uh, of olive ridley turtles yeah. so we've okay. actively been working with communities along the coast in orissa uh, and empowering them to say how do we conserve these turtles without uh, without of course compromising on their own well-being and welfare uh, yeah to say why these turtles are important to us what value do they add to us why do we mm-hmm. need them coming back every year and what does it mean if they don't come back or if they come back in lesser numbers what is that an indicator of uh, those are things that we work with communities on uh, and okay. we borrow a lot of the scientific uh, data and the scientific literature from dakshin foundation itself who do absolutely mm-hmm. amazing and path breaking work with the turtles anyway okay awesome so this is another thing that i know about what you do mm-hmm. right like you do participate actively in rescue as well like illegal possession and selling of birds as well right like we've seen like many of these pop up stores where they're actually selling these exotic birds mm-hmm. uh, birds which are not supposed to be there and stuff like that right so what has been like your experience over the years so do you th- see that you know things are moving to a better place or is there like still a huge market out there for such things to prevail Yeah unfortunately we've been uh, doing this again for like almost uh, 20 years now but the market yeah. just seems to be growing and uh, 
and i think okay. the, the proliferation of social media and media in general have a big role to play in this uh, mm-hmm. you see more and more people posing with animals they have as pets uh, right. mostly exotic and some endemic species as yeah. well and that's often fueling uh, fueling a demand for these animals uh, in some of the other sections of society who have an mm-hmm. aspiration to living and for some reason uh, it's come to a point where people think having an exotic animal at home is a yeah. is, is a status symbol yeah uh, totally and that, mm-hmm. that that's led to such a high proliferation of prey from the species that we used to see in before would only be yeah. parakeets and some of um, some of these smaller birds that are very endemically found Yeah, uh, yeah. and now there are uh, now there's such a high import of uh, exotic species from other countries which unfortunately okay. the uh, we don't have much regulation around in india in terms of the law uh, mm-hmm. but the, the most shocking thing for me to learn was recently that people in bangalore and other cities have these okay. uh, cats called serval cats at home which are basically african wild cats uh, sure okay these are cats that are supposed to be in the savannas of africa Uh, and these okay. are cats that can jump 10 12 feet off the ground to catch a bird mid air uh, as they're supposed to be oh. doing in the wild uh, uh-huh. and unfortunately people are keeping them in homes and breeding them and selling them to have as pets um, and i mean for anyone listening you should google a serval cat and it's the it's it's slightly smaller than a cheetah so uh, okay that that's how much it's proliferated uh, just keeping exotic pets at home uh it's it's crazy and this is insane right like earlier is to think maybe it was just to do with like dogs where people just get dogs of this mm-hmm. exotic breeds where they're not even supposed to be and they cannot even thrive in these weather conditions but mm-hmm. then it looks like it's not just dogs but then no matter what breed it is anything related to like being exotic you just have you know need to have it if you have that money and that you know capacity to just get it then it's just there i guess right absolutely but the unfortunate thing is a lot of people who bring these animals in are really poorly informed on how to care for them uh, which okay. results in severe compromises to the welfare of the animal uh, mm. we've seen so many animals suffering with a variety of diseases and various skin conditions for instance and yeah. ever so often the people who do get them and are unable to care for them the unfortunate yeah. thing is they'll just go dump them in the nearest wooded area or the nearest lake or something of that sort and yeah. the risk there is again these creatures spreading diseases to endemic wildlife in those places uh, right. and these might be diseases that we've never heard of uh, and it's yeah. just a, such a such a risky thing to do you just never know when these diseases are going to spill over from animals to people even um, and mm-hmm. what they would do to the ecosystem locally it's a very very right. scary thing but we're seeing more and more uh, species coming into trade okay so what are usually what usually happens so much in this case like suppose somebody has maybe discarded or abandoned such a pet right mm-hmm. uh, do you like take them back and you know try to like rehabilitate them somewhere else or mm-hmm. uh, what what usually happens post that like if you actually come across such a case and uh, what usually are the next steps yeah so very broadly there's a couple of things that go on in the whole uh, buying and selling of animals itself right uh, there is yeah endemic species which are species found within the country all of mm-hmm. which are protected under the wildlife protection act of india so you can't legally trade in them anyway yeah uh, there is yeah. a lot of illegal trade in that then that happens like parakeets and snakes and uh, leopards even 
and pangolins uh-huh. are uh, ever so often illegally oh, yeah. uh, caught and sold mm-hmm. uh, we we have quite a wide network of informants across the states and across the across some okay. of the states south indian states as well who very regularly will give us information on uh, some of these instances of trade that that's happening and we then okay. work with the law enforcement agencies uh, respective law enforcement agencies to convert that information into actionable intelligence uh, and okay. we work with them actively to rescue those animals or animal articles uh, which are which have been confiscated uh, and okay. then the uh, procedure of law takes place of course uh oh. that's that's for animals that are endemic and can't be sold anyway um, which are illegally sure. sold anyway then there is uh, all see. the exotic animals which are outside the purview of the indian uh, laws unfortunately uh uh-huh. and when those get sold uh, like i said since there is no regulation it's very hard to clamp down on the sale itself but okay. like you said every time there's somebody who dumps an animal somewhere an exotic animal somewhere we invariably yeah. do get notified on it uh, and we do pick them up uh, okay. we also don't have a rescue center that will specifically take in exotic animals unfortunately so uh-huh. more often than not they're sent to zoos or they're sent to oh. uh, just people who know how to care for them better uh, i see institutional setup for uh, exotic animals is yet to come in place okay sure so again now i again want to go back to one of the topics that we were discussing about right the snake rescues mm-hmm. because i've mm-hmm. uh, i think i'm totally fascinated with this entire mm-hmm. thing and how it happens and stuff like that right so mm-hmm. you've actually done this in the past and like you said you began when you were just in seventh standard right yeah. so for many just seeing a snake is a super scary thing mm-hmm. and a lot of snakes like you said you know they have been killed maybe because of that fear and what not right so again i want to know like where did this begin for you like how did you feel that well this is something that you know i think i can go ahead and you know do it and uh, i could sort of contribute more towards it yeah i was i've, I've always been fascinated by snakes and i i failed to understand why yeah. where it comes from but uh, i think sure the the one thing that uh, fascinates me about snakes is the fact that without arms without any limbs uh, they're yeah. able to be on land underground uh-huh. in water and on tree tops i mean they just seem like they're there yes. everywhere uh, yeah and it's fascinating overall right like you're imagining a essentially a big totally. cylindrical pipe like animal uh, yeah imagine that animal eating a deer or imagine that animal mm-hmm. eating a pig and how how does that even work i mean it, it's just it was just mind boggling to me to begin with uh, okay to even say that there are snakes when i started volunteering and i realized that there are snakes in the city uh, uh-huh. that was a big eye opener for me to say what there are snakes in the city because we only saw uh-huh. snakes in the city when snake charmers brought them to us in baskets i know uh, in those days right like correct yeah for money correct 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 and to understand that there are snakes wild snakes in the city uh, which are living mm-hmm. alongside us and we know nothing about them was very fascinating to begin with uh, yeah. and i started digging into just learning more about snakes Uh, around us and yeah. unfortunately resources were really really scarce on uh, mm-hmm. on the amount of information that you had available there were yeah. very few sources of information even uh, and that mm-hmm. just led me to speaking to more and more people trying to connect with more and more people who work on snakes uh, like my mm-hmm. current uh, my, the, the partners that we work with Jerry Martin was okay. one of them uh, who uh-huh. I reached out to in very very initial days 
uh and i'm pretty sure i bugged him a lot uh, <laughs> uh just with very with the most random questions uh there was such little information that i think i remember sending him emails at some point of time where i would find a snake in a rescue that just looked different and i would say is okay. this a new species uh, uh-huh. and, uh i i know i know better now that he definitely wouldn't have had the time to respond to those but he did and he uh, he encouraged a lot of learning and growing as well uh yeah and, and the more i learned the more i just got into it and you know and at some point the, there was a flip where i realized that they are such misunderstood creatures uh mm-hmm. and you would you would see snakes killed in conflict simply because people didn't have the patience to wait for somebody to come or simply yeah. because they were unwilling to just let it be uh right and to me that's where it began to say that what could i do uh mm-hmm. to to help bridge the gap between what is reality about snakes and what people's okay. perception about snakes is uh uh-huh. and that's where my snake rescue journey began and we've been I, I still do rescues every now and then uh but i was most active in rescues for several several years and that's the, every time you every time you're faced with a snake you're just humbled even more uh to yeah. th- every snake is so different and you have something to learn from every time you interact with an animal uh right. snakes are just that you know they're such uh the creatures to whom there's been so much uh, i don't know mystery attached and there's been so much uh, intrigue around them but in reality they just scared little creatures who just want nothing to do with us uh i know they, they just want to get away from us uh, <laughs> that, that that just the amount of mistrust and, uh, and fear about snakes that's what led me to working closely with them and working closely yeah. with people who are around them more than anything else to just leave them alone and they'll be just fine absolutely i mean it was so funny because one time i remember you asked me to get this snake rescue kit or something like mm. that i mean usually people people do ask to get like you know electronic gadgets or something yeah. else from us yeah. anybody traveling to us and coming back and you were like can you get me this oh <laughs> that I, i don't know yeah you know you know like bad golfers are like the best friends of mine uh because the golf clubs are very very useful to turn into snake hooks so i i i, I would yeah, i would love to meet bad golfers who break their clubs and i can use them to make snake hooks yeah i think that was the day i was like oh my god like he he really loves what he does right so oh, yeah. that that was like a funny moment that i sort of remembered absolutely <laughs> yeah and and you have also worked alongside uh, romulus whitaker the amazing herpetologist and the founder of madras snake park and the crocodile bank right mm-hmm. so i i still remember the show that he did um on king cobras you know mm-hmm. in agobe forest in karnataka and this was a nagio right and i was still in school i remember mm-hmm. and i was just so amazed uh with what he did and how he did and how he sort of showcased uh how you know the king cobras live what they do how they like move around and all of that right mm-hmm. so i'm sure there were many key learnings for you right when you sort of worked alongside with him so mm-hmm. what was that experience like it was it was mind blowing to be honest i mean the we uh, like like you said uh we've all just grown up seeing him yeah. on television uh yes. and he was one of the first people him and jerry martin both were one of the first people from yeah, india uh taking mm-hmm. content from india onto nagio uh yeah. and for better or for worse we were all fascinated with 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 the content that they provided there uh sure. and it was about snakes because he was the only one speaking snakes in 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 the more popular media so as to speak uh 
Uh, right. So when when I did get the chance to work alongside him on on several projects, and we continue to mm-hmm. uh, I continue to interact with him and uh, work with him whenever possible. Uh, yeah. He's 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 an absolute uh, legend when it comes to herpetology in India. Uh, uh-huh. He is undoubtedly the father of Indian herpetology. Uh, and sure. we joke with him and say that he's now the grandfather of Indian herpetology. <laughs> uh, but he's the, there are, like you said, there are so many learnings from him. The yeah. biggest one that I take away is how open he is to learning, even at this point of his career. Uh, he's uh-huh. worked with pretty much you name the person in the world on whatever reptiles, he's done it all, including uh, being given the Padma Shri a couple of years ago for his contribution uh, to yeah, science. Yeah. Uh, Definitely. Despite all of that, what I've noticed with him is anybody could go speak to him. Somebody like me with mm-hmm. minimal experience could also go speak to him. And he's still very intently leaning in and listening to you and always open to learning. Uh, okay. That to me is such a, it, it's a very humbling thing. And it's, 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 the, it's the learning that I've taken away the most. Uh, to know that no matter what you do, no matter how experienced you are, to always mm-hmm. keep an open mind to learning because it just never ends, right? I mean, you, you're Correct. always learning from anybody you meet. Uh, and he's Absolutely. always there with a pen and a paper to uh, to write down notes. with To take notes? Else. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's so another wonderful. habit. I know. That's another yeah. habit that I'm, I've, I have tried hard in the past to cultivate and still trying. Uh, but okay. yeah, even to this day, when I meet him, he's, he's, he takes out his pen and paper and he, he does that with everyone he meets. Um, okay. He, he he never forgets, which is which is a great great thing to take away, really. I know, absolutely wonderful. I mean that that show, I think, uh, was just too fascinating. You know, it was just as like how we had seen, like say, I don't know. I'm just giving like a random example mm-hmm. here, but it was like you know seeing Jungle Book, how excited you would get. I know. <laughs> but I used to get that excited seeing all these uh, shows and you know how he would do such stuff. Absolutely, so again. Absolutely. Yeah, and there could be like so many more people looking to make a switch to conservation-related efforts, right? So mm-hmm. where could one begin? Like, do you um, maybe could possibly tell about any tiny steps that one could sort of, you know, begin with? Sure. Uh, we get, I get asked this a lot as well by uh, folks who are yeah. in their late teens now who want to pursue a career in conservation, for instance, or uh, who want to pursue, uh, or who want to try something more full-time in conservation itself. Uh, okay. And one of the things that we do, I do stress with them on is to say that wildlife conservation needs a whole host of people, right? They need needs a whole host of skills. Uh, yeah. Everybody who unfortunately who gets in touch wants, uh, gets in touch saying, can I learn to handle a snake? Uh, mm-hmm. And we, I, I always say why? And they say, because I want to uh, conserve snakes. And the okay. biggest the, my answer to all of them is to conserve an animal or conserve any wildlife. You don't have to know to handle them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's not conservation, right? And what yeah. what I often tell people is that find figure out what your expertise is. Like if your expertise okay. is in writing, for example, you could mm-hmm. be a great bridge between communicating science uh, between science and mm-hmm. communicating that to common people. Uh, science right. communication now has taken such a center stage. So find right. what your expertise is. Are you great at, say, cartooning? Uh, and we've had several, several wildlife artists who've come up in the last few years who convey all the ground reality, who convey the challenges on ground, 
through cartoons to such a wider uh, set of audience that we could never do otherwise. Uh, if you're great at social media, use social media tools to just create more awareness amongst people. Uh, mm-hmm. My earnest request is for people to find what they are good at and see how okay. that could apply. Be con- uh, how see how that could be applied to conservation instead of okay. doing it the other way around, where where I was saying uh, I don't uh-huh. know the science of it, but I'm going to line, learn half science and try and do a half job of it. Uh, right. If somebody has a skill set. Uh, that yeah. could be utilized effectively in conservation. That's the first step. Um, and okay. we see so many people who are great at filmmaking, for example. Could they yeah. take mm-hmm. that skill to showcase some of the work that's happening on ground and just get them to a wider audience? Uh, so many more skills in soft skills in media, in various other yeah. things that could be taken to wildlife organizations and the work that they're already engaged in. That's the first Absolutely. step. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Wonderful. So, Again, I, I definitely had to ask you this, uh, but mm-hmm. who are some of the other conservationists that, you know, totally inspired you and you feel that, oh my God, how, how on earth are they doing this? Oh, there are there's literally so many. Uh, tons. Uh, tons, tons. <laughs> uh, the one whose work yeah. I, I, I follow very closely and who I absolutely admire is uh, Dr. Vidya Atreya. She's okay. now with uh, Wildlife Conservation Society. Uh, okay. She does. She has done absolutely unbelievable and very inspirational work around leopards in Maharashtra. Uh, okay. And she's somebody that I've always looked up to. Uh, uh-huh. And there are several, several more people like that. But to be honest, the the ones that I'm really fond of and I can't uh, stop talking to uh, people about sure. is is just communities that that live with a tiger in their backyard, an elephant in their backyard. You know, communities in yeah. so many places like yeah. even Kurg and. Uh, Agumbe in various places. Oh yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there are houses and communities in Agumbe where there's a king cobra inside their house, and they say, "That's fine. It's just going to go away in a few days," and they continue doing their day-to-day Absolutely. work. Yeah. To me, they are the and, and, biggest conservationists. Absolutely, and and I was just going to say that you know, since uh, my grandparents were from this Agumbe and uh, mm-hmm. Tirthali region in Karnataka, the same thing mm-hmm. used to happen because you had this old style houses then, and just for the warmth, right? They used to come yeah. inside the houses, just curl up and just sit there, and everybody would be like, "Okay, there is a snake; it will go <laughs> yeah. away. We don't have to like really bother about it." <laughs> so sometimes when I tell these stories as well, it will be like. What you had a snake and you're like not really bothered. It was yeah. like yeah, it's fine, you know. Yeah, and you know that's that's still that's still prevalent in several parts of the country. That culture yeah. of saying it's it's okay if there's if there's an elephant, uh, they they'll vent about yeah. it for some time. They lose some crops, but then they say, okay, the elephant yeah. also has to eat. It has to live somewhere. Uh, Absolutely. The, those people to me are at another level altogether. I mean, here are people in the city who can't tolerate a lizard in their house. But here are people oh, yeah. with elephants in their backyard and king cobras in their house, and they're perfectly fine with it. Uh, those yeah. are those are people who really, really inspire me. Absolutely, yeah. And and one last question before I let you go, Sumanth. So, with like so much of negativity that we see around us, right? It sometimes does get difficult to keep the focus and stay motivated and do what you got to do, right? Mm-hmm. So, what is it that works for you, which just keeps you going and you know, with this conservation and everything, right? It's definitely not easy. So what, right. what is it that keeps you going? Um, yeah, definitely. Especially in the line of work that we're in, we see so much happening yeah. to animals on a day-to-day basis. 
uh, it, right. it sometimes can be really off-putting to a point where you just say, I don't want to see it anymore. Uh, and I just yeah. don't want to do anything about it because you feel very, start feeling very hopeless. Uh, yes. One of the things that keeps you motivated and keeps you going is to have a great set of people around you. Uh, mm-hmm. who, and, and that's the only way it works. If you have a community who sort of picks you up when, on, your, on, your, on the days when you're down uh, yeah. and just fill you with um, a sense of purpose on, to continue doing what you're doing, that's pretty okay. much most of what you need. Uh, and we are mm-hmm. fortunate enough within the organization, within HSI itself, and I'm fortunate enough in my personal life to have great people around me uh, yeah. who, who don't let you forget why you're doing what you're doing. And that right. keeps you going. Uh, every time there's, every time you feel down, you see mm-hmm. the work that other people are doing despite the same circumstances, despite the same negativity around them. Uh, and right. that just keeps you, picks you up in an instant and keeps you going. Uh, and we ultimately, uh, we, we all know why we are doing this. Uh, yes. And we know yes. what's at Where stake. Where it all if, began. Right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And we know what's at stake if we, if we stop doing this. Uh, that's, right enough of a motivation on most days to get out of bed and get doing what we do best. Awesome. Awesome. And as always, it has been so amazing chatting with you. And I always take so many learnings from you and so many more stories, Sumant. Right? So thank you. Thank you once again. Thank you, Surya. Thanks for doing this. Yes. And for all those listening in, you can actually follow Sumanth on Instagram and his handle is Madhav Sumanth. You can also visit hsi.org to know more about the fantastic work the organization is actually carrying out. Thank you, everyone.